Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this season of The Deep. We'll be here in a couple of weeks, but in the meantime, I'm going to be resharing some of my absolute favorite episodes. You can subscribe to The Deeper membership where I post a new episode every single fortnight, even while we're on break. There's links to that in the show notes to subscribe on your Apple Podcasts or on Android with Acast Plus. I hope you love this episode from the archives. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So the fact that I was in prison for 12 years for a crime I didn't commit and the fact that I lost you know, all of my 20s. I mean, I went in prison when I was 20, came out when I was 32. So the best years of my life um, were, are gone, gone forever. And, and, and I can't get those years back. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Could you imagine being in prison for 12 years for a crime you didn't commit? How would you survive that? How would you survive solitary confinement? Survive the other prisoners? Survive the injustice? Today, I get to speak to Raphael Rowe, who did survive. In fact, he's gone on to be one of the great journalists and the host of one of my favourite shows, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons on Netflix. Buckle up. This one's a little bumpy. Content warning. If you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. Raphael Rowe, you have such a fascinating story. Potentially one of the worst things that could ever happen to somebody happened to you. Yeah, that's right. And if you're referring to the fact that I was, as a young man, wrongfully arrested, charged and convicted of murder and robberies and then imprisoned for the rest of my life, it is quite a harrowing story. Um, But I live to tell the tale. I'm out the other end. Um, At the time, I never thought that that end would ever come, but it did. Um, But it took a very long time, 12 years, in fact, before my convictions were eventually sort of recognised or overturned and and I was set free. So, yeah, quite a harrowing beginning to life. And you were very young. Were you 19? I was 20 when I was arrested and imprisoned. As a 20-year-old, like if we can just go back there for a moment. Were you running with a bad crowd? Were you doing bad things? I I had my running with the law, um, you know, in context. I, I grew up in a deprived area of London. We call it sort of council estate social housing. And so, you know, my beginnings in life was like the many millions that you have um, in, in this country and all over the world. You know, I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, that's for sure. Um, But all my family and most of my relatives were law-abiding citizens, as was I, um, until I hit my teenage years and I started to get into trouble first at school, as you do. I say as you do, not everybody does, but I (laughs) did, you know. Um, I wasn't a bad kid, but I did start to commit petty crimes, I suppose, Um, and that was via friends, really, peers, and wanting things that I didn't have, but nothing serious. Um, You know, a bit of shoplifting. Um, Occasionally I'd break into places and take things, you know, um, things that I regret now as an adult. But as a young man, it it wasn't about the excitement. It was simply, you know, committing crime to support um, a lifestyle um, that was just kind of, typical of where I grew up you know there was no mentors 
in terms of sort of leading you in the right direction. I don't want it to sound like everybody around me was criminal because they wasn't. It just so happened that I got myself into trouble with, with the law. Um, and so that brought my attention on, on me to the, the authorities' attention. Um, but, but that's not an excuse. I mean, it's just the way life was. Because this, this crime that you, that they blamed you for, was um you have to this is what i've gotten online so you have to correct me if i'm wrong but the story goes that um a gay couple were having sex in a car parked in a field and they were um attacked assaulted by three young men in which you were one of them and during this attack one of them had a heart attack and died that's correct. Yes. Um, I wasn't one of them that attacked these two guys. Um, it, it's not as black and white as right. that because they're, they're you, you know, it's a complex. I say it's complex. It's pretty straightforward. But there were two versions of events. I mean, if you go on the original version of events, the young man that survived that attack didn't refer to any sexual activity between him and the older man that he was in the car with when they were attacked that version of events did change and that's what it ended up in. But yeah, uh -huh. in essence, basically three young men described as two white and one black um, chanced upon two men in a car who were performing sexual acts on each other. And um, in the commission of robbing their car, the elder man died of a heart attack and the younger man was tied up. And the three perpetrators um, left a stolen car at the scene of that crime and they took the car belonging to the two occupants that were attacked and that car was driven to the home of some other occupants and that house was um, raided by these three perpetrators and um, the younger man in that house I think he was in his 30s he was attacked by the perpetrators the perpetrators made their escape with jury and um, goods and they stole they left the car from the murder scene and took the car um, from the second house and that those two cars or that car was driven to another property so in one night you had the murder you had the mm. attempted murder and aggravated robbery and then the three perpetrators ended up at another property where mm. they robbed the occupants of that house left the car stolen from the second offense and stole the cars from the third offense so in one night the three perpetrators committed two aggravated robberies and a murder. And it was never you? It wasn't me, no. The the victims of each of those crimes on the night originally described to the police, this is before I was arrested, this is what made the headlines the following day in all the newspapers and all the broadcast outlets, that the victims had described the perpetrators as being two white men and a black man. Um, but in, in a few days, three black men were arrested um, and charged with those offences. So from the very outset, the police had embarked on fitting me and my co-defendants into this crime, even when the evidence was quite clear from the victims themselves that we couldn't have been responsible. So do you believe that this was... Um a racial target that they were trying to wrongfully accuse someone on purpose? I think you need to put it into context. And in the late 80s here in England, in, in, in London, there were police officers who were racially motivated. I don't believe at the time that we were targeted because of the colour of our skin. I think as the evidence um, as the evidence started to point in a different direction, the police had already charged both me and my co-defendants with the crimes. And so when evidence was discovered that pointed away from us being guilty, the police then conspired with witnesses to fabricate evidence to try and explain away some of the, the facts that, that pointed away. And I'll give you an example. Um, the, the car that was abandoned at the scene of the murder um, the police discovered a few days or weeks after I had been charged the fingerprints and the fingerprints belonged to a white man with blue eyes and fair hair and he fitted the description 
given by the victims at the crime who described one of the men as having blue eyes and fair hair. Mm. Both me and my co-defendants all had brown eyes and dreadlocks, so we obviously didn't fit that description. When the police discovered these fingerprints on the car at the scene of the murder after we'd been charged, rather than going and questioning the individual whose those fingerprints belonged to, they then got that witness to give fabricated evidence to say that the reason these fingerprints were there was because he was involved in stealing that car for me and my co-defenders, which was a complete lie and fabrication, but it was a way that the police explained away evidence that proved we couldn't have been involved in these crimes. Because what happens then on the day that you get the knock of, at the door or wherever you are and they say, Raphael Roy, you are under arrest and you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? What Can you tell me what happened in that moment? Well, I think we, we, we didn't discover until long after we'd been in prison for many years that the, the police targeted our home, the flat that I was living in with my best mate, because they'd been pointed in that direction by a police informer. And that police informer incidentally turned out to be the only blue-eyed, fair-haired white man in the case. Um, mm. And so when the police came to our, our flat to arrest us, they'd already been told that the men responsible for these crimes were living at that address. So when I was initially arrested by the police, I was 20. I was cocky to some extent, as terrified as I was once I discovered what I was being accused of. Um, it's not every day you have police officers with guns pointed at you and being arrested. Um, but it was only during the interrogation in the police station that I discovered what the offences were that I was being accused of, i.e. murder, attempted murder, and a series of aggravated robberies. Now, I knew when I was being interrogated that I wasn't responsible for these crimes. So that in itself was a relief, but it didn't help when they started to level allegations at me and started accusing me of being involved in these offences and saying that people were giving evidence against me, saying that I was involved. Um, so it was a terrifying experience. It was a terrifying time. But I never for one moment believed that they would end up charging me. That moment comes, right, that you know that you're innocent, but they charge you with someone else's crime. Yeah, after three days of interrogation, the police did come and they came into the cell that I was being held in and they told me that I was going to be charged with the murder and robberies. I thought it was a scare tactic. At first, I thought that they thought that I knew something about the offences, which I didn't, and that by threatening to, to charge me, I would then spill the beans on other people that I might have known was involved. But I didn't mm. know who was involved. I knew nothing about these offences. Um, but the police did charge me. And that evening, I was then taken to a prison within a prison. And that's where I started the, the very long journey of trying to prove my innocence. <sighs> and... Just for everyone that has no idea, what is jail like? I was taken as what they call a Category A prisoner, which is the highest category type prisoner you have here in England. And so I was originally locked up in a prison within a prison. And by that, I mean where most people would go into an old Victorian prison, they'd be put in a cell the, the cell block that I was put in was a specially built prison with inside a prison because of my category and because of the, the nature of the offences that I was accused of and because of the, the, the media frenzy that surrounded this case. You know, it was one of those high profile cases where, you know, the newspapers were calling for hanging to be brought back and for wow. those to be... So it, it, it was as scary as that. So the prison that I was put in, I was... Um, confined in a cell that, you know, it didn't have any sanitations or anything like that. It was, you know, I was given a, a, a potty, if you like, a chamber potty, which I was expected to pee and poo in every day, which is what I did for the next 18 months while I awaited my trial. Um, and, and all of the prisoners that were being held in this particular prison within a prison were your highest category prisoners. Some were accused of um, IRA offences, which is the um, terrorist organisation that was based in Ireland here in, in the United Kingdom, um, high-profile gangsters, Colombian drug cartel-type people. Now, I didn't associate with them because I was confined to a single cell by myself 
And every time I was let out of that cell, I was escorted by two prison guards and, and a dog. I exercised when I was allowed out of my cell for association in a cage by myself. So I spent 18 months literally on my own inside a prison within a prison awaiting trial. Could you, so in your um, cell, was it barred or was it a big heavy door? Like, could you talk to people next door? No, I, the, the, I mean, if you imagine, so I've gone into this box within the prison. Um, so to get into this box, you'd go up an iron staircase and then one door, huge steel door would open. You'd go into this very small three by three space, probably smaller, and that door would shut and they'd open another door. And then you'd go into the sort of wing of the prison. And then they had about 20 individual cells. And in that cell, there was a steel door with a little spiral. In the cell itself was a bed bolted to the floor, cardboard table and chair, and then a window. And I say a window, but actually it was like a, a, a space cut out of the concrete wall and it had three sets of bars. So you have the one set of bars that, you know, if you visualize that image of the hands holding the bars, and mm. then behind that you had another section of bars going in the diagonal um, direction and then behind that you had a wire mesh so it let in very little light and it was high up in the wall and it was just a concrete tomb that's the best way of describing it and the only way in and out of that space was through that steel door which was open one hour a day every day um, for me to go to slop out to empty that chamber pot or to go and brush my teeth so I was emptying my chamber pot in the same space that I had to brush my teeth and wash my face, which is what we describe as a, as a slop out area. And I wasn't the only one. Every other prisoner was doing the same thing. So if I was prisoner number 12 coming out, 12 prisoners before me would have emptied their poo and pee in that space that I was then emptying mine and had to withdraw that, that smell, that stink. And sometimes you could see it all draining away. That was my existence for the next, you know, I spent my 21st birthday, something that most people celebrate in the most luxurious way, if you like, but I was confined to a prison cell. Because I'm just, there's something about that that is so fascinating to me, which is being with yourself, um, you know it's an injustice. I can imagine it's crazy making, it's maddening. And you have no outlet, no physical outlet, no emotional outlet, no uh, phone calls. Like, what do you, can you get a piece of paper and a pen? Like, what are you doing? How are you coping? Like, literally minute to minute. It's a difficult thing to describe because um, I think your mind, your mentality shifts um, and, and adapts to the scenario. You're right. Some people are broken instantly by the space they're being held in. And to some extent I was, I suppose that the difference, the difference for me was that I knew that I was innocent and, and I didn't believe for one minute that I was going to be held there for 18 months. I thought every day that something dramatic was going to happen and that the prison guard would open the door and admit that they'd made a mistake. And people say that all the time, but I truly believe that that's what was going to happen. So the initial first, I don't know, six months or seven months, it was very much about trying to remain mentally sane. I was allowed um, approved visits and not anybody could come and visit me, but my immediate family, my parents and my sisters were able to get approval from the government to come and visit me. So they had to jump through many hoops to get permission to come and visit me. So once every two weeks, I was allowed to go to a visiting hall that was highly secured. Uh, where I could sit down and, and talk to my parents or my sisters, um, or I could have legal visits. Um, every two weeks, I would be allowed to write a letter. So they issue you with a letter that you can write um, on prison issued paper. So I would use that to write to my solicitor and discuss my case. Um, but I suppose it was after six months of having absolutely nothing and just being confined to that space and trying to you know, practice yoga or anything that would keep me mentally sane and fit, um, I was then starting to get the documentation about my case, and that's what consumed every second of every day, just reading those documents, trying to understand why I was in that space being accused of the crimes that I didn't commit. Because I'm imagining that when you get 
your moment in front of your family or your legal team, you must be saying we have to find a way, right? You have to find you have to find some kind of someone that believes me. We need to get um, some something on my side. And I'm also assuming that your family um, potentially didn't have the means to get, you know, um, <laughs> how do I explain it? Like, um, you know, really great legal counsel potentially that could make made this a lot shorter. It wouldn't have made any difference. You're absolutely right. We didn't have the means to hire the best legal brains in the country. But even if we did, I don't think it would have made much difference because the criminal justice system doesn't work like that. Um, you know, you know, it, it's not like a movie or a television program where some dramatic moment appears with some um, lawyer who has a, a magic wand. It just doesn't happen like that. I think there were two things going on. The first thing was, you know, my family didn't have the means, so it was just moral support. That's the most they could offer me, you, you, you know, to believe in me. And at this point, we were still waiting to go to trial. So we, we had the hope that when we got to trial, we would be able to prove that I didn't commit the crime. And as the evidence was coming in, i.e. the documentation, that reinforced. I mean, when I was first arrested, I didn't know about the two white men and one black man. You know, I didn't have any other kind of means of understanding what the evidence was. But as I started to read the documentation, so that was the bane of all of our discussions. I mean, as you can imagine, your parents and your family, they don't know whether you're guilty or not guilty. They knew that mm. I couldn't have been guilty. But, you know, deep down, they must have been questioning themselves. You know, I was living away from home. I had been getting into trouble with the, the, the police. So they didn't know whether I was or wasn't guilty. Only they could only accept what I was telling them. So there was very little they could do. On the other coin, there was my legal team who were convinced as the documentation was coming in that they would be able to fight and prove my innocence. But that moment would only come when we got into the court. And so everything was about preparing for that court hearing. I read something that your girlfriend made a statement against you. Is that true? Yes, as did many others. It was a girlfriend who, um, I mean, for most crimes, when you're accused of a crime, the first thing that you need to try and establish is your alibi. You know, was you somewhere else when the crime was committed? And my girlfriend at the time, or one of my girlfriends at the time, um, who I was with. So let's just put this into context. So the murder was committed, let's say, at midnight on, on the night of the crime. Now, the girlfriend and, and a number of her friends, for example, and the parents of one of her friends whose house I was at, remembered driving me home back to my flat at just after midnight and getting back to my flat at 1230 which was about 25 miles away from the scene of the murder. So if my girlfriend and the, her friends and parents were with me up until after midnight, I could not have been at the scene of the crime. So not only did we have the descriptions in our favour, but I had an alibi, at least for the time of the murder. And mm -hmm. that was accepted by the prosecution. What the girlfriend then said in her statement to the police was that at about... 2.30 in the morning, this was way after the murder and first robbery was committed, that she remembers me getting up and leaving her for a moment and not coming back. When she woke up, I came back later in the morning and that at some point the next day, I gave her some property that had come from one of the robberies. What happened when I was on remand in that prison within a prison is I received a letter from this same girlfriend admitting that she'd lied to the police out of jealousy and um, she was scorned. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus. I thought that, that that letter would be the, the get out of jail free card, but it wasn't. You know, the prosecution ignored the letter. They believed what she said. Um and that evidence that she used against me, even though her evidence was quite damning and it was a pure fabrication, and I believe the reason she fabricated it was for two reasons. One, she received a, a large amount of money in terms of a reward. Wow. And I also believe that she was having an affair with the only white guy in the case, the guy with blue eyes and fair hair, and that he'd given her the property and that when she was found with the property, that came from one of these robberies, 
he'd convinced her because they were still on the outside to say that she got it from from me. You're saying, you know, before it wasn't like a movie, you know, where the legal system, you know, whether you've got money or not, they can wave a magic wand. But this, this sounds like a movie. I think you get two types of miscarriages of justice. You get those where you are fitted up, you know, the police plant evidence and they fabricate evidence against you. I think what happened in my case um, was that they fitted us in. Every time the evidence pointed away, as I say, they then moved the goalpost, if you like, to try and fit us into the, 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 the case. The only forensic evidence pointed away from us the the property from most of the robberies were found at another man's house and and his girlfriend's and he became a witness against us so even when the police were discovering evidence pointed in another direction as i say they they moved the the goalpost so you do the 18 months in this horrific um what do you call the jail in the jail well i call it a prison within a prison it's a maximum security prison then you get moved. Why, first of all, why do you get moved and where do you get moved to? Well, what happens is, is that after the 18 months of being held on remand, which is the time that I spent waiting to go to trial, I then go to trial at the Old Bailey, the, the number one court at the Old Bailey here in the United Kingdom. And we had a, a six-week trial. At the end of that trial, the jury found me guilty and my co-defendants guilty based on the prosecution case, despite the fact that the perpetrators didn't fit our description despite the fact I had an alibi but they were very skilled at persuading the jury that we were responsible. Can we just go back to the moment where they give you your your conviction and your sentence? Can can mm. you tell me what happened? Like you're seeing all of this play out and you're feeling really hopeful because things are coming out that uh, now making you look innocent. What happens in that moment? Are you, do you remember in detail? But when the jury eventually went out to consider their verdict and came back in and found us guilty, my life changed forever. I mean, I'd already been through a life-changing experience. You know, I'd gone from being a 20-year-old, happy-go-lucky young man to a bitter and twisted and angry um, victim of of the criminal justice system. But then when the jury came back in and they found me and my co-defendants guilty. There was only one sentence that we were going to get, and that was to spend the rest of our lives in prison. And I felt broken and crushed at that moment, but at the same time, angry and bitter. And it started to fester in me and, and lived with me in all the years that I was in prison. I was taken I say taken I was almost dragged back down to the cells when I was found guilty because I was protesting and shouting as was my family and friends and and supporters and many journalists who believed that we could not have been guilty of the crimes but I was dragged down to the prison cells and I never kind of saw sunlight again you could say for the next 12 years at any point of the fighting back and the does a part of you then go I'm tired I'm tired and I just okay I, I admit defeat this is it for me I will comply never I, I never went there because um, I mean of course there were moments where I was in such a dark place in my head and physically that I didn't and couldn't see a way out I couldn't see a way through and what I did then is I would read the documentation or look for another way out through the documentation because every time I read the lies that people had said against me or the fabricated evidence, it gave me the energy to fight. I just wasn't going to accept people telling lies that meant I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison. So I meticulously went through every line of every document, and I'm talking of thousands and thousands of documents, looking for ways to bring it to my solicitors and say, look, this wasn't right. I mean, I did that initially, but then we were working towards an appeal where I would have the opportunity to argue my case again in the appeal court. And so the first three or four years after I'd been convicted, it was all about preparing for the appeal, hoping 
in all hope that the second bite of the cherry, if you like, I would be able to prove to judges that the original conviction was 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 unsafe. And so instead of giving up, what I did is I looked for reasons to fight on, and it was always driven by the evidence, the evidence that showed I was not guilty of these crimes. I knew I wasn't involved, but I needed to prove it by showing with evidence. So when we were going to the appeal court, I had hope that that my conviction would be overturned. It wasn't. I went to the appeal court, my conviction was upheld, and I was sent back to prison to spend the rest of my life in prison. But that didn't crush me. That didn't, I mean, at the time it did, don't get me wrong. I mean, at the time I was suffering in a way that I shouldn't have been suffering. But mentally and physically, I was building up the strength to carry on fighting because I was never going to accept what had happened to me. Wow. And what about your co-defendants, your mates? Are they in the same jail? Do you see them? Do you talk to them? Do you, where are they at? How is their mental state? I, I didn't have any um, any association with my co-defendants when we were in prison. We were all kept at different prisons. I only knew one of the guys, one of my co-defendants, I didn't even know. Oh. Um, he wasn't arrested and charged. I, I didn't know him. One of my co-defendants was my best mate, and he was arrested in the flat with me at the time that we were arrested, and we were both um, convicted. But I didn't see him for many, many years. Um, whilst I was in prison, we were held in different prisons. We were segregated from each other for no other reason than, than that's how the prison system works. We were being kept in different prisons. I think there was an element of, you know, the further they kept us apart, the harder it would be for us to collaborate on trying to fight our wrongful convictions. But I don't think it was as sinister as that. I think it was more that the system just works in that way with different people. We changed as individuals. And I was bitter and angry and I was fighting the system differently to how my co-defendants were fighting the system. What were they doing? Well, they weren't doing as much as I was doing in terms of fighting my conviction. So um, and, and one of my co-defendants, he was dyslexic, so he couldn't read and write and he wasn't able to. to so, so he was a victim in, in different ways. Um, so he wasn't able to to fight his conviction. He was also, um, you, you know, embarking on a completely different way of doing his sentence. You know, I don't think he accepted what had happened to him by far, um, but he was just doing it completely different from me. I, I was just so angry and bitter. He was as well, but he couldn't articulate him, himself in the same way I could. What do you find to take to the, is it the final appeal? Yeah to prove your innocence what is that key well in my case it was really an outside body i mean we'd we'd um gathered as much new evidence and we'd broken down the old evidence if you like and showed all the inconsistencies and were still banging on about the same points about the perpetrator's descriptions and the fabrication of evidence but key to our case was the non-disclosure of, of evidence. So there was lots mm. of evidence that the police and the prosecution had never disclosed to us that we could have used at the original trial to convince the jury we were innocent. And so as we were getting closer to the final appeal, there were, um, I think the biggest turning point was the media support. There were lots of journalists asking questions about the safety of our conviction now. You know, the tide had turned, whereas Previously, the journalists were just talking about capturing and locking up these wicked and evil men, bringing back hanging, um, whereas now they were asking lots of questions. And that was basically driven by me and my campaigners over the years who had presented eloquently to the journalists the documentation and evidence that showed that we couldn't have been guilty. So they were now reflecting that in their newspaper reports and documentaries were being made about my convictions, you know, looking at my alibi and the timelines. And it all just seemed really ridiculous. But I think the pivotal moment was when um, I got a new legal team and these these were experts in challenging wrongful convictions in the European Court of Human Rights. And so we put together a, a, a document that was presented to the European Court of Human Rights. So 21 judges across Europe considered our application and the presentation of our new evidence because it was our right to bring that case. And 21 judges who considered that application unanimously agreed 
that I'd been denied the right to a fair trial based yeah. on the fact that the, the prosecution and the police had never disclosed to us all the evidence that could have proved our innocence. Now, the European court cannot in, insist that the British court open our appeal, but they strongly recommended um, that they gave us another appeal. And that's what happened. Basically, the European court insisted and the British criminal justice system, having been embarrassed by the European court, decided mm. that we would get a, a new appeal. There was also, I should add, a, a new body set up in the United Kingdom called the Criminal Cases Review Commission, and they were responsible for investigating alleged miscarriages of justice. They were a power body that was set up because there had been some notorious other miscarriages of justice. And it was evident that the police and the prosecution had been fabricating cases against citizens here in the United Kingdom. And when they reviewed my case, they come to the conclusion that my conviction was not safe. And so they referred my case. They had the power to refer my case back to the Court of Appeal. And that's when my convictions were overturned. Oh, what a bloody story. <laughs> It's just the most, yeah. it's just the yeah. most outrageous thing. It, it is, Zoe. I mean, I, you know, I went on hunger strike. I, I spent many months in isolation. I suffered physical beatings by prison guards because I wouldn't resist. I witnessed things I shouldn't have witnessed when I was in prison. So, you know, I endured a lot, both physically and mentally yeah. uh, during those years in prison. And on top of that, I was fighting my wrongful convictions. It wasn't easy, even as the years went past, where every day I'd have to go back into that prison cell knowing that that's not where I should be, having to watch my my nephews and nieces grow up in prison, seeing their uncle, my sisters who, who were suffering, my parents were suffering. It, it, you know, So it wasn't just about me. I was enduring the worst but there were lots of other people. I was just very lucky that I had a loving, caring family who supported me and tried to fight for me on the outside. But again, you know, they didn't have the means, but I was able to garner lots of supporters who did have the resources and the power and, and they were you know, articulate enough, if you like, to, to argue for me and be my voice on the outside. God. Made a difference. It is just the most incredible thing, the most incredible thing. You just said you witnessed things in jail that you should never have witnessed. Can you tell us what those things are? Well, there were a number of things. I mean, it was all centred around violence, really. I mean, one of the earlier incidents that I, I, I witnessed was a, um, a young black man um, being um, burnt with boiling water and, and sugar. I mean, it wasn't the one occasion I saw that happen more than once, but it was uh, uh, horrendous to stand there and witness a man have uh, a boiling water poured over his face as he's held down and just watching the skin from his face peel off, um, you know, from a black man to a pink man. That's basically how he ended up because of the violence I witnessed um, other prisoners being stabbed and almost lose their lives. Um, so I witnessed things that I, in, in, you know, people taking their own lives. I remember walking out of my cell one day and a man in a cell opposite me was hung from his cell. He took his own life, killed himself, and I watched them take his, his body out. He'd been in prison for a very long time and um, he just learned that he was not going to get parole and so he probably felt that he was never going to be released. So he decided to to release himself mm. from the confines of the prison. This is not an innocent man. This was a guilty man. Um, so I, I witnessed a lot of things um, and suffered things myself. Because I, I know it's morbid, but I do have this deep fascination with prison and, you know, hierarchy and how to survive and the food all of it, um, you know, if you're in a cell with someone and you have to poo, like even just that to me is such a confronting thing that people just have to get used to in the first moment, you know. Um, were you 
scared in jail for your life or did you were you able to hold your own because you had so much rage and you fought back I mean I I mean there were occasions where I would be scared um because I knew the threat was was real um and sometimes you didn't know when it was coming at you so there were times where I was I was scared and and that went on for years you know in different places um or you'd fallen out with someone or they were just such dangerous individuals that you didn't know whether they would turn on you or it might be somebody wanted to score some drugs and you could become a victim in order for them to get um paid but i i survived the years that i was in prison by keeping my mind mentally strong by keeping my body physically strong and by keeping my body physically strong um agile and capable also stood me in good stead to fight for myself i mean one of the first fights physical fights that i myself had in prison was with probably the biggest guy in the prison at the time i'm five foot eight he was like six foot five built like a brick mm. and and i remember me and him having a fight you know i was literally jumping off of the ground to hit him um he was that much taller than me um but i think that 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 created a, a a reputation for me that i would stand up for myself i would fight for myself and so i did on many occasions have to protect myself um by fighting my way out of situations i i was not scared of prisoners in the sense that i'd lived among the, the worst of the worst the best of the best the the unstable the manipulative the, the the conniving every type of man you can possibly imagine every type of criminal and crime you could possibly imagine i met and lived among those individuals and so i got to understand how they ticked how they worked how i could look them in the eye and avoid a situation um myself so it has its advantages now on the outside in the real world and the work that i do um but i learned a lot in those years that i was in prison with those types of individuals wow did anyone ever try to have a relationship with you you mean sexual relationship yeah do they like try and do that it's it the british prison system is not quite like that i think you know i i never witnessed anybody being raped by another prisoner i'm sure it happened on occasion but i was never privy to that i think the prisons that i was in you know the maximum security type prisons most of the individuals had been in prison for many many years and were going to be in prison for many many more years and so mm -hmm. if individuals developed relationships it's because you know they'd been in prison for 25 years they'd had no sexual contact with with a woman if you like um and mm. so they took on that that desire i i never did i never had anybody i mean i'm sure there were a few guys who kind of fluttered their eyes at me and winked at me and thought <laughs> that maybe after a few years but it just didn't tickle my fancy it's just not what what i am i was fortunate that in the later years of my prison time i had lots of pen pals lots of female pen pals who <laughs> wanted to come and visit me so i would nick a kiss or a, a little feel on a, on a visiting <laughs> table where it would would be allowed um i hear that is a real thing these pen pals these ladies that love the inmates well i suppose you know it's horses for courses isn't it i mean there are some women who you know they come in different shapes and sizes i think some were you know i i think they were attracted to me because they had themselves low self esteem and probably had been in bad relationships on the outside and they found someone who they knew where he was all times of the day so he couldn't be dishonest i think there was others who took pity on me and thought that they could offer me something by coming and sitting across the table and and sharing their life on the outside or 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 their experiences so it comes in different shapes and sizes and for me it helped it helped to have some moments of escape from the reality of everyday prison so every one or two hours that i could spend on a visit with somebody who was not a prisoner was was really helpful to me yeah and you know receiving that letter with the scent of perfume is for prisoners really important i suppose the scary thing is in all the years that i you know i went to prison when i was 20 so i'd never been in love in the years that i was in prison 
I resisted the temptation of falling for somebody, even though I had a couple of close relationships with female pen pals or girls that became close coming to visit me. I, I resisted the falling in love because I'd seen so many men, you know, cut their wrist or try to mm. take their own lives because that woman who they thought had loved them, you know, needed to get on with her life and, and move on because they couldn't withstand what they had to endure coming to a visit every day. So I resisted that, but I did have, you know, an escape by my pen pals. So fascinating. I want to go back now to your release. The biggest mm. thing for me, which I'm sure everybody listening is wondering, is how does anyone compensate you I don't think you can be compensated for, for spending 12 years of your life anywhere in any institution when you shouldn't have been there or, or for any reason. So the fact that I was in prison for 12 years for a crime I didn't commit uh, and the fact that I lost, you know, all of my 20s. I mean, I went in prison when I was 20, came out when I was 32. So the best years of my life um, were, are gone, gone forever. And, and, and I can't get those years back. So although the British government um, were prepared to um, financially compensate me. Um, it, it, it was never enough, could never be enough. And, and they do cheeky things like charge, deduct from that compensation, board and lodgings, <laughs> because they put you up, fed you, uh, and that's how ridiculous it is. You know, don't misunderstand this, Zoe, and your listeners. You know, you don't get a big lump sum of money that, uh, you know, sets you up for the rest of your life. It doesn't work like that. You know, a lump sum of that money is earmarked for psychological therapy. A lump sum of that money is to pay for clothing, for rent and stuff like that. So it's broken down. It's not like what you might read in the papers or these fantasies that people were given millions of pounds. I was not. It was nothing near that um, or anywhere near that. It was calculated. To, to 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 help me reintegrate back into society immediately. Um, and for those who are unfortunate to not be able to find work, which is really difficult when you've been in prison um, and very difficult when, when you've got a, a conviction over your head, even if you've been wrongly convicted, although all those things are very difficult, um, you, you know, that money runs out pretty quickly. And if you're not as fortunate as I would, to, to start a career and, and, and earn a good wage from that career, um, it's not going to be long before you're, you're, you're back on your arse. And, and that in itself is going to bring all the problems that you've, you've been able to escape, if you like, when, once you left prison. I mean, the psychological trauma of being wrongfully imprisoned. We are going to talk about that in just a minute, but I have to know what the first thing you ate was. I think it was rice and peas and chicken. My, my dad's from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, and I think I didn't taste that um, in all the years that I was in prison because they just don't provide that kind of food in prison. So it was nice to taste something that I used to eat before I went into prison. And what was the one thing, what was the first thing you did other than eat? <laughs> um, I fucked as much as I could is the, <laughs> the sort of rude... That's the rude answer, and I repeat that answer um, because I was deprived of physical sexual contact and, and I wanted to catch up. I went in, I was 20. I was supposed to be doing that stuff and getting it out of my system so that I could settle down and, and, and find the love of my life and all that kind of stuff. And I missed out on all of that. So I came out rampant and ready and, and, and tried to fulfill 12 years of what I missed in, in 12 hours. Oh, with who? <laughs> well, when I was in prison, I, I was lucky enough to have pen pals. I was lucky enough to have um, female visitors who became more than just pen pals. You know, you could call them prison girlfriends. Um, and, and I'm talking about years of, of sort of visits, uh, kisses and cuddles over a table. You, you, you know, some of the kind of trials and tribulations you have in relationships, although mine must have been very different from the reality of real relationships, you know, sharing the toothbrush holder and all that kind of stuff. Mine was just basically an hour or two hours on a visiting table. So when I came out, I was I was lucky enough to still be in, I, I say relationships, 
Um, and that might seem unfair and seem like, who does this guy think he is? Some kind of player when he was in prison. It wasn't like that. It was a survival mechanism for me. And um, the, the relationships were known to, to the other women. It's a difficult thing to sort of explain if you haven't been in that situation. Why would a woman come and sit on a visiting table with a man who's been wrongfully imprisoned, is serving a life sentence, and yet know that he has other female visitors coming and visiting him? Um, I, I can't answer that. And, and, and I, at the time I talked about it with them, um, but it was more because there wasn't a, a physical relationship, it felt more uh, an emotional relationship. And sometimes I was just the shoulder for that person. So when I came out of prison, we connected um, on the physical level and it was very different from the emotional level. Um, and then obviously I met other people, but it wasn't just sex, don't get me wrong. I didn't spend the next 12 months in and out of any bed I could possibly find. I mean, I'm saying I got that out of my system, that desire, that craving, that, that, that sort of animalistic need, as well as traveling. Um, and discovering shops and life again. So it was more than just the 12 hours catching up. How do you live now with the injustice? I think the, the, the built-up emotions and stresses and bitterness and anger in me poured out on the, the first day of my release when I was able to embrace my sister and my family and cry. I think I released a lot of the baggage that I would have gone on to carry had I not been man enough, brave enough, you know, vulnerable enough to to, to shed a tear immediately after I was re released. And so that made coping with what I'd been through a lot easier. And, and I kind of made this tacit agreement within myself, not necessarily to anybody outwardly, but to myself that I was not going to allow... Um, my life to be consumed by what it had been consumed by for the last 12 years. I wanted to be free. I was now free. I could enjoy life. So I was going to enjoy life. Um, it did take a slightly different direction um, 12 months down the line when I, I became a journalist for the BBC. Um, and, and that opened a whole new um, range of options and, and ideas and possibilities for, for me. Um, but I suppose the key to it was that I was not going to allow my newfound freedom to be consumed by the bitterness and the anger that I felt in all the years that I was in prison fighting to get out of prison. Have you forgiven? Yeah, have you forgiven and moved on? No, I, I, I don't. I don't forgive those who deliberately did what they did to take my life away from me. And, that, that you know, this is not, I, I, I don't put that on the police. I don't put that on the criminal justice system. I put it on individuals who knew that what they were doing was wrong, and yet they went ahead and did that wrong uh, and made me suffer as a result. Um, I think I can forgive those who, who who made the mistake of believing, for example, that I was guilty um, based on what was presented to them. But I think those who deliberately fabricated or conspired with the police um, to fit me into this crime and take my life away for 12 years, I, I couldn't forgive them. Why would I? Even if they apologise, I wouldn't forgive them because if they were wicked enough at the time to do what they did, which is stand up in a court and tell lies about me, which secured a conviction, convinced a jury that I was guilty, I, I don't have any space in my, my, my heart or, or, or mind to forgive those people. What happened to the dodgy, the cops or the police or whoever it was that wanted to arrest you? Zoe, you know, these are seasoned professionals whether it's the police officers or, or the prosecution or you know they will always maintain that they didn't get it wrong that the system got it right when they wrongfully convict me but when the system overturns my conviction and deems my freedom gives me my freedom back um, they will say that the system got it wrong so it gets it right when it suits their purpose I mean nothing happens to the police no police were held to account they they got their knuckles wrapped by the judge um, the prosecution, nothing happens to them. You know, they don't go into the court looking for truth and justice. They go in there to fight um, and articulate from an adversarial system. That's what the British criminal justice system is. You know, nobody ever gets held accountable for a miscarriage of justice. Unless, of course, 
it's so blatantly obvious. And even in those cases, you know, no police officer, for example, let me put it this way, no police officer in the United Kingdom has ever been charged, prosecuted or imprisoned for wrongfully, his or her responsibility for leading to a wrongful conviction. So that tells you a lot. Criminal justice system here is not geared up to go back over cases like mine and prosecute, pursue those who, who, who made that possible. No one's apologised to me. Nobody ever will apologise to me. In fact, you know, the judges, when they were quashing my conviction, made this declaration that it was not a declaration of innocence. You know, there they are telling everybody that my conviction is not safe and they're going to set me free. And then they're saying to people, but, you know, this is not innocence. This is not guilt. What, what is it then? Um, they took my life. They convicted me for crimes I didn't commit. And then they, 12 years later, overturned those convictions and set me free. And then they make statements that I think undermines the power of the innocent, which is, you know, changing the perception of, of people and what they think about the criminal justice system in this country. You've mentioned that a saving grace has been your career. You studied journalism, you get out of jail, you start working for the BBC, you do lots of incredible things. And currently you have many things happening. I found you through Netflix, through Inside World's Toughest Prisons, which I told you I'm a massive fan (laughs) of everything jail which is a little bit sordid. Um, And I love, I mean, you are living my dream, which I mentioned to you before we recorded. You get to really live amongst these prisoners in some very um, obscure, different uh, prison systems. Um, First of all, is this your dream career? Um, it's interesting you say, I mean, I've been doing it a long time, so I suppose, um, it's not a dream job. It's an important job. I I wouldn't describe it as a dream job because what I do is try to, in all the years that I've been an investigative journalist, a a reporter, a correspondent, you know, and I've worked for radio, television and long form documentaries and now Netflix. I think it's always been about changing people's perceptions because, that's what I had to do, and, and that's what drove me forward. That's where my resilience comes from. That's where my personality and, and, and sense of character comes from, my humour. Everything about me comes from the, the need to change people's perceptions. So when I go off making documentaries, I, I'm excited, whatever the, the genre, whatever the, the topic or, or issue. So, um, as, as you know, it, it, it's not as glamorous, let me put it that way, as people sometimes make it out, out to be. No, it is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I travel the world. I spend a lot of time also in service stations up and down motorways, you know, eating service station, petrol station sandwiches. You know, I spend a lot of my career doing that, as well as flying to, you know, far flung places in the world, but, but also living on a very dangerous edge, you know, being chased out of cities by gunmen and things like that. So my, my, my career is, has been very diverse and, and wide, you know, going undercover for, for months in foreign countries where my life is in extreme danger is, is it, it, it's exciting, um, but, but it's not, I'm not driven by that excitement. It, it's, it's, it's always been to change people's perceptions and, and, and by investigating a story or telling a story um, that that's how I do that. Informing and educating people has always been key to my 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 desire of being a, a journalist. So you know, you might describe it as a dream job, and for most people, it 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 is. But I think once you're in it, you see it slightly differently. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Can you tell me, just as a fan, have you ever been scared in those? I mean, you've lived your own, uh, obviously, your own history. You've got your own history with prison. But have you ever been scared walking into any of those jails? 
I have to be honest and say that every time I walk in any of these prisons, I am, um, you know, on a scale of one to ten scared, ten scared deep down inside me because I know how unpredictable prisons are. And there are some prisons that are even more scary. You know, in the first episode, Brazil, where they chop off prisoners' heads, you know, I, I didn't want to be the victim of, of that kind of violence. And that's the kind of risk I was putting myself in. You know, Lesotho, one of the last um, episodes in, in, in the recent series, you know, where men chase me, uh, uh, threatening to, to, to rape me. This is real stuff. This is not um, drama for, for television, although it kind of balances itself out when the reality of why I'm there and the conversations that we have with people. But you just never know how unpredictable prisons can be. So, yes, I am scared when I go in there, but the key is how I channel and manage that fear in me in order to cope in, in those seven days, five, seven days. And do you, do you believe that you would be doing this work if you hadn't had your own incarceration? Probably not. I mean, my whole career is, 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 has been created out of the, the suffering that I went through. Um, it can be uplifting in the sense that, that everything that I went through provided me with the character that I am, the, the skill sets that, that I have. Um, but no, I don't think if, if I hadn't gone through what I'd gone through, lived the life that I'd lived, that I would be anywhere near the journalist correspondent and the person that I, I am. And tell us about your podcast, Second Chance. Second Chance, my podcast is is a platform really for, for the voiceless. I want to give people who want to tell their side of, of, of the story. And it's often um, focused towards those people who have been vilified in the media or, or are, are heroes in the eyes of other people um, or just don't have an opportunity to tell their side of a story. So, um, for example, one of my recent interviews is with a guy who himself spent um, 13 years in prison for a crime that he did commit. And very soon after his release, he was tackling a terrorist on, on, on London Bridge here in the UK who had just killed two people and had injured three other people. So one moment, this guy is vilified as a murderer. The next moment, he's being championed as a hero for tackling this terrorist who the police then shot dead. And I think in that particular case, you know, where he talks about his second chance, his second chance of proving to people that, that he was once bad, but he's now good. And he did good in that situation, not only to tackle and disarm this, this terrorist, but to show people that people's lives can change. So it really is a mission to try and give a voice to the voiceless and give people a second chance to tell their side of a story, whatever that story is. And it's not all around crime and punishment or law and order. It, it can be anything. Our final question today is, who are you when no one's watching? The same person that people watch. I like to think that I'm as authentic and as credible um, in real life as I am or try to be when I'm on screen doing what I do as, as a journalist. And, and, and my wings have been fluttering a lot more recently than in the past. When you work for institutions like the BBC, you have to uh, conform to certain degrees because of the, the, the way it's established. But now I'm, I'm a freelance journalist I can inject my own character and personality into the work that I do, and I think that's starting to come through. But in answer to your question, Zoe, I'm the same person that people see on television. I might say that I'm slightly better in real life because I like to think I like to think that I can laugh a little bit more. I'm not in what people see serious situations, even where I try to joke and, and smile. But in real life, I'm I'm honest, direct authentic and, and, and credible and I, I truly care. I care about the things that, that I embark on and, and believe in and I don't judge and I'm in between happy and sad I think 24 hours a day just who I am. Mm. Thank you so much for your time with me and sharing so much of yourself. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great evening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's the Deep. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.